And I think that that requires the public talking about it. I mean, if we could talk about the problems in healthcare as much as we did about, you know, something as as unfortunate as racial injustice, but but think about how much it's on the public mind now. Now, I'm not suggesting that we burn <laughs> or break windows, right? But I think that we, we really need to talk about this on social media. And I can tell you that I, I have a Facebook, a group called Healthcare from the Trenches, and I'm trying to encourage this banter. And if, believe me, there are people who certainly disagree with me, but that's great because that encourages us to dialogue and learn and improve because the status quo is, is just not acceptable. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. This week's episode is part two of my interview with Dr. Alejandro Padilla. Dr. Padilla is an orthopedic surgeon focusing on hand and upper extremities based out of Miami, Florida. He operates Padilla Hand to Shoulder Center, the Surgery Center at Doral, and Ortho Now, an immediate orthopedic care center. During the pandemic, he finished his book called Healthcare from the Trenches, an insider account of the complex barriers of the U.S. healthcare from the providers and patients' perspective. His goal is to generate awareness and educate us on how insurance companies and government regulation are causing healthcare costs to skyrocket and how it affects a clinician's ability to provide us care. Well, I want to discuss this cost savings analysis that you provided to your local government, which I thought kind of puts the nail on the head, you know, with regard to the cost savings that can be achieved through going directly to the right physician or, you know, going through the current system. And, you know, you talk about this, it's DeQuervian's tendonitis, and you show the example that the traditional system goes through the primary care, which puts them through months of therapy, which is painful and not helpful. And then, you know, going into a clinic like your orthopedic urgent care slash ER, there's a cost savings and and that's pretty significant. I mean, the traditional system, it was, you could save the county of Miami almost $10 million a year and the city of Miami, 1.3 million. I mean, that's insane. And and that's just with the workers' compensation. So if you look at just in general, you know, employer health, so just the employees in both those government entities, you know, little Johnny gets hurt playing soccer. There's a cost of, associated with that. Not to mention that, you know, mom or, or dad may take a half a day off of work to take that kid to the uh, doctor. And many times here in Miami, they'll go to the children's hospital and then they'll, they'll, be, they'll they have to go to the orthopedist. The orthopedist is two weeks out with appointments. I mean, it's a mess. But the numbers I stated are, are actually well researched by our team. And, um, what it what it's basically said is that if all of the work comp claims, the orthopedic claims for our county and the main the largest city in Miami Dade County, which is which is Miami, if those workers came to a specialized orthopedic walk-in center like like ours, as opposed to a general urgent care, the hospital, an occupational health center, which is where most of them go to because they have a contract. I mean, the occupational health center staffed 
many times by a family practice doctor who's making an hourly rate and they're doing the best they can. I'm not knocking them, but it's like you coming to me for an eye problem. I mean, I'm an MD, but I really don't know about the eye. So everybody walks out, unless it's a very obvious injury, these workers come out with the, like uh, all the time, a shoulder sprain. Look, I'm a shoulder surgeon. I don't even know what that means. I know what an ankle sprain means. It really isn't a shoulder sprain. It's not really even an entity, but it's just a very general term. They'll give some, you know, an anti-inflammatory, they'll order therapy. And all of a sudden that's money. So the decor veins is a type of uh, tendonitis. Uh, some people call it mommy wrist because you'll see it actually postpartum. So a lot of women will have this and they think it's from picking up the baby uh, or workers think it's from doing heavy work. It's usually a, a hormonal metabolic problem. The, the tendons get a little bit thickened and swollen and they get stuck. So an astute clinician who sees this all the time knows that in 85% of the cases, a single injection of a cortical steroid will resolve the problem within two days. But most of these patients come in with an MRI where <laughs> my med tech knows, oh, Dr. B, there's a, there's a decorated patient. The syringe is ready for you in the ultrasound room. Boom. She knows that. But no, they, these patients come to me or to even to the ortho now after eight weeks of treatment where they're not any better. They've had an MRI. They've had therapy. And at that point, many times now they do need a minor surgery because they don't respond as well to the injection as if they had been seen early in the course of the tendonitis. That's just one clinical example that outlines the issue. And then we looked at the number of work comp claims, and that's, that's how these numbers got calculated. And they're actually very conservative. I mean, they're very conservative. It's unbelievable the amount of money that's spent because the people in charge of this simply aren't listening to us. And we're trying to tell them, look, we're in the trenches. We understand this. The patient, if they went to the right person early on, they'd be off work for less time. We would expend less resources. And, and you know, the human factor, which is the part I care about as a doctor, it's very painful for me to listen to somebody who's had shoulder pain for five months. And they said, you know, doc, I kept asking them to send me to the specialist. And now they do. And the person who makes the decision is a insurance adjuster sitting maybe in Orlando or, or somewhere else in the country. That's really how medicine's being practiced. And I think people don't understand that. Well, let's talk about how you propose, you know, we start changing the system because you, you mentioned some of this. You state that the change has to be, I like this, demanded by beleaguered clinicians and the potential patient through grassroots efforts of education, awareness, and collaboration. You could have each listener have a call to action following this podcast episode, you know, either as a fellow clinician or a real estate investor that focuses on the healthcare real estate asset class. What would it be? Well, I think we, we need to make a move towards basically getting the, the patient to the right clinician at, at the right time. So if that means the, the propagation of walk-in centers that are specialized, where you're really seeing the right person early on, sort of getting rid of this concept of you've got to go through this gatekeeper. Even the primary care doctors don't really like the fact that somebody with back pain comes in and you know they end up just maybe ordering a test, but getting them to the person who really knows how to manage back pain. We have to shift how we practice medicine. And I think that requires the public talking about it. I mean, if we could talk about the problems in healthcare as much as we did about, you know, something as unfortunate as racial injustice, but, but think about how much it's on the public mind now. Now, I'm not suggesting that we burn <laughs> or break windows, right? But I think that we, we really need to talk about this. 
on social media. And I can tell you that I, I have a Facebook, a group called Healthcare from the Trenches, and I'm trying to encourage this banter. And believe me, there are people who certainly disagree with me, but that's great because that encourages us to dialogue and learn and improve because the status quo is, is just not acceptable. That way, we're going to get the attention of the legislators who hopefully will get involved and say, you know what, we just cut uh, the physicians again, uh, 9.5% or something on Medicare reimbursement. So that just took effect uh, a week ago. That's not the way to save money, paying the doctors less who are already, many of them are struggling. They really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the way to save money is to talk about what the real solutions are. And I give my own humble ideas and that of about 15 other contributors in the last chapter of the book. But if we can at least have a dialogue about that, then we could really save money. So people just have to talk about it. You know, I've done podcasts and I can tell you there's not many people really reach out to me and say, hey, I have some great ideas. What do you think about this? That doesn't happen very often. And, and I'm hoping it, it will. That was the goal of the book. I can tell you the book doesn't, you know, make a lot of money, right? With sales. It's, uh, no, but it's a tool. Amazon takes a half of it, which is, which is great. <laughs> They're a great company. And, and what I like about it is just that it's an opportunity to, uh, to get out there more. But there, there just isn't as much engagement as there should be. And, you know, I'm hoping that's going to change. A book I just read, I, I didn't read it before I wrote it, and I wish I had, was uh, by Jonathan Bush, who ironically is the, the cousin, the first cousin of uh, George W., our second Bush president. And he was the founder of Athena Health. And he wrote a book called Where Does It Hurt? Holding up an x-ray, which is the United States. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he went through and it was kind of like a love song, you know, break up with somebody. You think every song is singing to you, right? <laughs> and I read this book and I said, boy, this guy is exactly talking about what I've been saying. And I'm not alone. There's a lot of who uh, don't want to ex- accept the status quo. And we just all need to get together. And with the patients, the patients need to get engaged. When they have these issues, they need to talk about it and say, you know, my insurance company sent me here and this was a waste of time. And what, you know, why couldn't I have done this? And when that happens, then people will take notice. Well, you give me an idea to to have a special podcast with just clinicians talking about this. But I know you talk about how you tried to uh, motivate some physicians locally and none of them showed up to the meeting. And, and I think that they're probably like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work as hard as I can. And then, you know, a lot of them have families and the other people in their lives that they need to attend to. But what do you think if there was some maybe retired physicians that could maybe take the charge and, you know, supported by the physicians working, but they're retired, but they've been through the system, they know it, but they have the time to spend with you know, their government officials and legislators to try to change some things. That's a great thought. I mean, I hadn't thought of it that way. I I can tell you there is a retired urologist from uh, the the university system here, and he started a company called uh, Health Drum, like beating the drum. So healthdrum.com. And what that is, is one of a number of websites which talk about common sense payment for everyday things. The problem is we depend on insurance for everything where I really think insurance should be kind of like catastrophic insurance you have for your home, right? In Miami, you know, a lot of people have windstorm. I have my own perspective on that, but, but <laughs> certainly you, you should probably have insurance or something if, you know, you got diagnosed with a rare cancer, you need a bone marrow transplant or you get hit by a bus and you have multiple 
you know, you're in a hospital for a month with multiple uh, fractures. Uh, but, you know, for an ankle sprain or that to assess your hypertension, your blood sugar, maybe we should just pay for that. Maybe all that money shouldn't go towards, you know, what, what is now like the big five health insurance companies. Let them worry about the larger things. But I think when patients put in some skin in the game, meaning they pay for something, I find that they're a lot more engaged with their care. They're going to maybe not eat that second candy bar if they're having problems with their blood sugar, right? Maybe they're going to exercise more. Um, and these are things that, that actually Jonathan Bush said as well in his book and, and other books I've read, is that there really has to be some responsibility in the public, even if it's to a modest degree, maybe depending upon what your income level is. But, but certainly it, it, there, there is a, a difference in behavior when you have to pay and it's not that third party or let the insurance company pay. That hasn't worked out too well for us. I, I think we need a change in approach. Yeah, and I would say that I think obesity is one of the biggest common problems. And if people, um, and, and some is genetic and that, and it's really sad, but some is just, you know, the supersize it mentality where, you know, I do think, you know, it, this is my next question, but, you know, I do think COVID has put taking care of yourself and preventing illness is better than waiting to get sick and then trying to fix it. <laughs> You know, we spend, uh, you know, almost half our healthcare dollars in the last six months of our, uh, of our life. And, and it's a hard question we're going to have to ask ourselves as a society. But sometimes with people, it's really, it's really better to learn how to ac accept death. Uh, to me, it's a lot more humane to make somebody comfortable, have them with their loved ones when they're really sick and, and not, you know, have them spend their last few weeks in the ICU, which is an incredibly expensive thing that is futile. And I remember this at NYU Medical Center in the surgical ICU. I mean, we, we have the technology to keep people alive a lot longer. Question is, should we? That's a hard to ask. And yeah, book by uh, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Unfortunately, Haven Health just, just tanked. But that was the uh, between J.P. Morgan and uh, Berkshire Hathaway and, uh, and Amazon, <laughs> strangely enough. That was the health initiative they were trying but Atul was the, uh, the CEO for that, a very bright guy, and he's uh, written a number of books in healthcare. But he, he confronts that problem head on. And I think society, we, we need to do that. We really do. I was having that exact same conversation with somebody recently. It's interesting. So you mentioned in your book, you know, because you wrote it right during COVID, that now is the time while people are holding physicians in such high regard and frontline workers and, and healthcare workers, um, because they are helping to save our lives. You said now is the time more than ever to ignite change as a result of society relying heavily on these capabilities of our frontline healthcare clinicians and battling COVID-19. When the pandemic is over, how do you feel clinicians should ally support for significant changes and tell their stories to demonstrate the pitfalls of our current system, which has, I think, been exposed with the COVID-19? Well, I think exactly what we're doing. I'm sure that a year ago, there weren't many podcasts about this. And I can tell you there's interest now. Now, the question is, when will we see this at the level of a CNN or a Fox News or a Wall Street Journal? Um, you see little bits and pieces, but there isn't really a real collective discussion about how we can actually change how healthcare is delivered in saving money. It seems every time we talk about healthcare, we talk about, oh, um, covering, you know, the uninsured. Well, okay, that's all well and good, but maybe 
if how we delivered the care, we'd have the money to, to pay for the uninsured to just give them the care. And, and that's the argument I'm making, but there isn't that discussion. You don't get people like myself who are doing this every day uh, to be able to speak about it on you know, CNN, for example. And I think that the public, if, if they took the time to read something like this and all the other books that are out there uh, talking about this, then, then we might see some change. I was making a point that I, I think that physicians and nurses and other, like as you said, frontline workers are, you know, getting a bit more respect now than we had been. We uh, Many times we read about physicians in the news, it has not been a positive many times. The one person who was bilking Medicare or some unfortunate surgical malpractice case gets a lot of attention, but we don't get attention for all the good things that, that clinicians are doing every day. And I think people see that now with COVID because, you know, you really, they really are in it. I don't include myself in that. I, I am certainly no hero. I'm a, I'm a specialized hand surgeon. I'm not in the hospital ER intubating people who are spitting up virus laden, um, uh, you know, phlegm and blood. These people are out there. And I think the public is recognizing that. Uh, I'd like to tell an anecdote. I was waiting for an Uber outside my house. I forgot what happened with my car, but I, I had to get to, uh, to the office. I had surgery that day. And so I'm in my scrubs. And some guy was running and he turned, he said, thank you. <laughs> around and I, I, who's he thanking? And I realized, oh, I have my scrubs on. And then I ran into him at the bridge because the bridge was up and I took a picture with him and I put it on our social media. And I, I thought, here's, here's a time that a perfect stranger, you know, was thanking a clinician for the work we do. And that kind of told me something about the public perception currently. And I think we need to, to ride that wave to get some real change now. Absolutely. That's great. I love that story. So if there isn't any change, where do you see the cost and ability to receive care in our healthcare system in five years? Well, if there's no change, I think you're just going to see big healthcare systems who are employing people like me. The incentive isn't there, right? I mean, when people are employed like that, um, you know, they're looking at the watch. I, you know, I remember, like I said, at the VA, I would do two knee replacements and I wanted to get, because I'm a hustler, I wanted to get, and these are patients waiting, right? They're on waiting lists almost. And I wanted to get the third knee replacement and the head nurse would come in and say, nope, you know, Dr. Badia, it's two o'clock. I don't think you can, you know, by the time we get the patient in, you can't be done by four. And I'm afraid that if we don't change, it's going to be like that. 85% of medical students that are coming out uh, of medical school now are employed. When I was at NYU Medical School, uh, which is now free, by the way. So one positive, <laughs> tuition free. At NYU, I remember, I think only about 6% of us in a class were employed, like, you know, complete salary. Uh, now it's 85%. It's changed wow. in two decades. And I'm worried because there are ramifications uh, to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now, Dr. Badu, we move into um, the get to know you part of the interview. So what was your first job? Selling newspaper subscriptions. I was about 14 and this guy would pick me up and three other middle schoolers and drop us off. And I remember it was a really rough part of town in Newark, New Jersey or East Orange. And, and uh, we walked door to door and, and had to knock and, and sell prescriptions to the uh, Newark Star Ledger, which was a daily paper in Newark. I, I, get, I imagine still is. But, you know, it taught me how to cold call on people, talk to them, explain benefits of something. It's kind of like discussing a surgical procedure. You have to explain what the, the pros and cons are. And uh, that was my first job. 
And then I got into the uh, hospitality. I was a busboy. And then later on, a waiter. <laughs> for my, my early jobs. Very nice. What would you be doing for a living if you were not an orthopedic surgeon? thought about that. And you know what really fascinates me is when I go by these construction sites, uh, or the building, I'm, I'm fascinated. Uh, in Miami, they're building what, what we, I think we're calling the iconic bridge. I don't know what the name is, but it's, it's going to be a really cool looking bridge that, that will resemble a spider. And uh, it'll be lit up. And it's going to resolve some problems, traffic problems that we have. And I drive by that uh, every day and I'm fascinated. And, and I say, uh, I wouldn't mind being, you know, doing that. Um, <laughs> hands-on, orthopedic surgeons were hands-on. So, uh, you know, construction worker or, or uh, supervisor or maybe the, maybe the engineer, but I'm not a great engineer. So my dad's electrical engineer. I admire what, he's, what he did. But, uh, you know, the reality is I can't imagine doing anything else. You know, that's the issue when you're, when you're that young and you decide what you want. You know, I didn't get to college. I didn't, I didn't get to Cornell and have the, the luxury of saying, okay, what interests me? I mean, I'm kind of envious of that. I mean, that's kind of cool. To, to, you know, I was just like, like that. So I don't you know. If, you didn't take the time to find yourself? <laughs> yeah, no, no. In other ways, maybe, but not. <laughs> not, not in academics. <laughs> I will say I'm telling a patient of mine who's a beach lifeguard who has a shoulder problem and I, I've teased him several times I go you know I think I could still swim the, the 100 yard pretty fast and I said if things get any worse I've done beach lifeguarding I said you're, you're taking care of people there is some occasional stress there's a there you know it's a healthy lifestyle uh, <laughs> maybe I'll do that again <laughs> what are who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration Oh God, that's a hard one because you know it's one of the frustrating things is that it's hard to get objective news now. So I, I think I do what a lot of people do is I go between CNN and Fox News, and I think I I think the reality is somewhere in between. Right. That's really sad. Um, I listen to the BBC a lot. I, I love uh, British culture, and I I do that. I listen to world news, and then for reading, I, I tend to read a lot more nonfiction and fiction. So so right now I'm reading about a Navy SEAL, and for some reason I can't remember it. I'd love to give it a plug. <laughs> Actually, the reason I'm reading that book is I've always been fascinated by that, you know, special forces and, and what they go through. And I chose this book because the only real negative review I've had on Amazon about my book was a guy who, who didn't, didn't call me a very nice name, but he was incensed that I compared surgical internship to maybe like boot camp or, or SEAL training. And I think he missed the gist of what I was trying to convey. But I figured if he liked the book and he's that harsh a critic, it must be a pretty good book. So I bought the book and I'm reading that now. Oh, very nice. <laughs> what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? You know, I myself am the subject of orthopedic surgeries. You know, I think you, you hit your 50s and you start having these issues. So I, I started playing tennis at 50 because I treat all these pros. I mean, some, some people that your listeners would recognize and they, they would often ask me if I played, and I, I kind of felt bad because I played a little racquetball and squash, but I never really played tennis. One of my patients, who's an excellent uh, tennis pro, started teaching me, and uh, I took a liking to it. But I've had all these interruptions. I've had a few left knee surgeries. I've had both shoulders scoped, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. So I, I started playing already again, and I hope to do that at least three times a week. So I would say that. Fitness, I can't really run anymore because of the knee, so I, I cycle. And 
sometimes just sitting and looking at the water. I'm, I'm lucky enough that I live on the water in Miami. And, um, and I just sit, I'm not, I won't say I, I meditate. I, I'd love to learn that skill because I think it is a learned skill, but I definitely sit there and introspect a little bit. Yeah. I love the water. Do you think a person is born with the desire to heal or is this learned only through their medical training? I definitely think there's something uh, innate about that, about it's like a calling. I'm not sure. I mean, there's a lot to learn, but in the end, you have to, as, as a, f- a physician, or any kind of clinician, I mean, you can ask nurses the same question. I think that there's a certain, certain desire to just help people. And if, when you combine that with science, then that's the, the ideal profession for that. Because I think many people do incredible things to help in the community. But we're lucky in that if you, if you have an interest in science, which I always have had, then you can combine it with helping people. And that, that's an ideal situation. It, it's a, you know, it, it's a privilege. It's a privilege for me that somebody sit in front of me that I've never met. And I tell them that I'm going to make an incision from here to here and put in a metal titanium new shoulder. That's a, a, a gift in society. So and mm-hmm. I, I do cherish that. Awesome. You said you do a lot of uh, workers' compensation, but what what is kind of your specialty that you do there at your office? Yeah, it tends to suit my personality. I've never been one. Like my dad likes a restaurant, right? He just, <laughs> he just, you know, me, I'm always looking for, for some try something new. So what I love about my specialty, people don't realize, is it's honestly the most diverse surgical specialty. So people, because people will say to me, hand surgeon, what do you do? And then of course, if we're on South Beach, they'll say, well, what do you do to make the hand look better? Right? So they think, <laughs> if I'm a surgeon, I have to be a cosmetic surgeon, right? Or in Scottsdale, right? Right, so, right. right. So I go, no, no, I'm the guy. And the guy, I'm the guy you might call if you're working in your garage, you put your hand into a circular saw, right? <laughs> right? And all of a sudden, like, oh my God. It, so what, what I like about what I do is it's, it's incredibly varied, right? So I do trauma. I do arthritis reconstruction. I do congenital problems with kids born with defects. I do arthritis. I do nerve problems. I do vascular surgery. I do everything that other specialists do, neurosurgery, but all from like here down. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that is amazing. And I think that's something that's often not appreciated uh, until you're actually in the specialty and you realize, my God, you know, I look at my surgical schedule, there are 10 completely different procedures. Whereas when I did cardiothoracic surgery, I mean, that's opening a chest, you're saving lives, but you know, it's three or four major surgeries and that, that just didn't suit my personality. Yeah. So. Well, there's a lot of bones in the hand to take yeah. care of. <laughs> are, and, you know, and, and we take it for granted, but to be able to do this is yeah. just an incredible thing. And to be able to restore that as much as possible is, is, is a gift. Well, Dr. B, I loved this um, conversation. And, you know, if there's anything I can do to help get the word out with what you're doing, I'm happy to help. And um, I think that we'll be speaking again. I hope so. And, um, you know, I think it requires to, to really impact healthcare requires a collaboration. And that can mean, you know, the brick and mortar. You've got to have efficient uh, places well situated for people to access care. And you need all these disciplines. I mean, I, I the first thing I tell like investors is I'm horrible at reading contracts P&L sheets. I mean, it's just not my strength. And I think everybody has to recognize their, their strengths and weaknesses and come together. And I think we can really have a, a big impact. There just has to be a desire and a will. And that I, I haven't seen it fully, but I, I, I'm optimistic. It's a brand new day. 
I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.